Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Steve. I, people say, how did you, what, what caused you to, to go to this prophecy conference? And uh, I said, I was invited. <laughs> but then I say I was invited by Dr. Hawking, one of my heroes in the faith, who stands for the person of Jesus, the word of God, and the second coming of Jesus. Jesus is coming, and I believe it's going to be very soon. And uh, I, every time I hear a noise, I, I kind of look up and think, maybe this is it. <laughs> but then I remember my preaching that says, you don't have to do that. It'll be automatic. We'll be out of here. Won't that be wonderful? Amen. Well, I, I want to thank all of you for your kindness. And by the way, I'm kind of like the preacher that got up one Sunday morning and said, now before I say something, or before I preach this morning, I'd like to say something. <laughs> and uh, I, Pastor Dave gave me a copy of his book on Jerusalem. I went home to the room, and uh, since my wife was not with me, I was kind of lonely, so I dug out his book and read it from cover to cover. I want to tell you, it is the best I have ever read on Jerusalem. There is, and that's what I'm speaking this morning, is, is there hope for Jerusalem? Is there hope for Israel? We'll get to that in a moment. But if you don't get anything else at the table, be sure and get that book. Now, I, I'm not much of a promoter of my own books. I got out of the marketing business after my first book. But uh, <laughs> I, I do... I have this compulsion to reach people through the printed page. And it's kind of humbling for a minister to kind of wake up to the fact that you can reach more people with your pen than you can with your mouth. Well, that is disillusioning. And uh, anyway, uh, there are several books back there I'd like to emphasize so that you might not get a chance, particularly at the prices that we're offering. I like to give people a bargain. But this book came out of my soul when I was in cemetery, I mean, seminary. Uh, I, I thought, surely somebody would write this, and nobody ever did. So I put it together, and what it is, it's 50 prophecy charts of the end times. See, I think graphically, and uh, I put that in the reflections. And so I went to the publishers, and I told them that I wanted to put out a fold-out chart and in the front of the book, and... They said it can't be done. And so I thought I'd like to show you what can't be done. And uh, I kept dogging them, and finally they did it. And uh, I think they had to send to China to get the printing job. But anyway, that's, that's just God's plan of the ages. We are so blessed that God has a plan for our future. In fact, I like to tell people that God has two plans. One for all of us in union, and that's on this chart, God's wonderful plan for the ages from Adam and Eve right down to the end. It's our plan that we spend eternity with him forever and ever and ever. That's a wonderful plan. But he has a plan for your life. He wants to take your life. And one of the challenges I love to share with people is Second Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro in all the earth. Seeking a man, and I think that's a generic term, for, meaning a human being, a woman, a man or woman whose heart is perfect toward him. Well, when I read that first, I, you know, my heart is not perfect. I have to be, confess my sins frequently. And so I didn't think I qualified. And then one day I did what uh, Dr. Hawking says, you're supposed to interpret the Bible in the light of the context. And so I went back and found that that perfect was complete, that a man whose heart or a woman whose heart is filled with faith, that's completion in the plan of God. And so it doesn't matter how much IQ you, you know, I'll be honest with you, you know how I graduated from high school? Magna cum laude. And, <clears throat> and we went, Dave and I went to the same uh, Christian college, and out of class of uh, 500 in my class, I graduated a few eons before him. And uh, I graduated 235 out of a class of 500. That's uh, almost half. And uh, so you could see I was measured for greatness. And, and then I started writing. 
because God put it in my heart. I, I, wrote, I was going through the book of Revelation on Sunday nights, and the people were loving it. We had crowds of people. That, in fact, we had to end up having two Sunday night services, one at five and one at seven. I got to preach the same message twice, so I finally learned it. Anyway, uh, the, the uh, message I wanted to communicate to people, I began to print, and I found that I'd have 20 or 30% more people come to church when they knew I was going to print. I, I think they knew I was better prepared. Anyway, um, I was preaching on the Great White Throne Judgment. And uh, a couple came to me and said, uh, would you call on so-and-so? Mother was operated on. She's in Mercy Hospital. And I said, sure, Monday morning I'll be there. So Monday morning I was there. And I walk in, and this woman is in a double room, and she said, Pastor, I'm so glad to see you. How would you like to meet our newest convert? And I said, oh, uh, what do you mean? She said, well, my family came by and they gave me your sermon on the great white throne judgment in Revelation. And uh, I gave it to my roommate. I'd been talking to her about Jesus and I gave her this and she read it. She said, read this thing and says, how can I get saved? And she invited Jesus into her heart before they both went to sleep. There I'm in Monday morning. I staggered out of this, you know, this room in the Mercy Hospital, Catholic Hospital, and I lean up against the wall. People are walking by, and I see the, the crucifix over on one wall, and I bowed my head and said, Lord, is it possible that you could use my life in writing? I've never taken a writing course, haven't yet, uh, and I'm not all that great a writer. I just write like I talk. And that seems to ring the bell with people. Well, to make a long story short, short, God has taken my writing commitment and used it above and beyond anything I could ask or think. Because God is faithful if you trust him. So don't be looking at your IQ and at your graduation and be like Obama and refuse to give the scores of your <laughs> lack of intelligence. Uh, instead... You just give yourself to God and say, Lord, I want to be all that you want me to be. He has a will for you, and I'll make you this guarantee. He can do a better job of running your life than you can. As Proverbs says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Trust in the Lord, and he will guide you. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. And that's the story of our life. And I challenge you to trust God to do the impossible. See, it dawned on me one time, if you're an ordinary person, and then you ask God for his blessing and instruction, and he helps you outperform your capabilities, people will look at you and say, well, if he didn't have God, he'd be sunk right out of sight. And I think that's an accolade, because then he gets the credit instead of you. Okay, now, anyway, in this, uh, there, there are 49 other charts. Now, they don't fold out, but uh, you'll find this to be a very present help in time of need. And then I have another book, one of my favorites. In fact, every book that I write at the time is my favorite. Uh, <laughs> Understanding Bible Prophecies. I've taken the key prophecy passages, and I ask you to write, fill in blanks, and I ask questions about it, And when you get through, you've taught yourself what the Bible says about prophecy. And then just to make sure you're right, I have a paragraph at the end of that chapter that straightens you out. It's my interpretation. And uh, then I have another one. Oh, this one, uh, a number of years ago, 30 years ago, I started a group called the Pre-Trib Research Center. Pastor Dave is, is active in it. He's spoken to us several times. It's always a blessing like he is here. And I get to draw on these men in certain areas. Some of them are the experts in prophecy, in, particularly in certain fields. And we have this popular encyclopedia that's alphabetically arranged, 150 different subjects uh, in prophecy. So that anything you want to know about prophecy, you just turn to that alphabetical arrangement, and it's there by one of our, our experts. And uh, then, just one more. i got to share with you a dream of my life is that the dream was not to put my name on the Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible. I wanted to write a study Bible. I bring these other three 
men, Dr. Heinsohn and James Combs and Thomas Ice, together, and the four of us decided to do it, and then we had a vote on what we'd call it, and they voted three to one uh, to call it the Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible. But the important thing is some of the experts in the country have contributed articles. Pastor Dave has a, an article in here and uh, others, and they communicate the things that God has revealed to them about that subject. And every prophecy that's found in the scripture is footnoted on the bottom page. And so that you can look at one page and you can get the gist of what the prophet is really saying. And uh, so be sure and pick this up. It's a little more expensive, but it's worth every dime. And you'll never find it cheaper anywhere on earth. (laughs) Okay. Having given that brief introduction, I... uh, I'm just breaking in a new set of. Well, between, thank you. Between hearing aids, car keys, which I've lost, and, and glasses, and other parts of my body I won't mention, uh, I have really get confused from time to time. And I have to give an apology to my friend, Dave, because, forgive me, Dave, but this is in the New King James. (laughs) When the publishers came out with this, they came out with the King James Version and the New King James, and the King James outsold the New King James, so the only ones left are the New King James. Oh, yes, in my latest book, and I had so much fun writing it. I wrote eight chapters and then I had ten other people participate in the popular handbook on the rapture. The rapture is the next most exciting event in all of history. And uh, I want to make sure that you understand it. And on page 169, just put that jog down, uh, there is a reference to the quotation in Second Thessalonians 2, as I discovered in talking with uh, some, reading some of the others that have gone on before us, that in 1384, William Tyndale, or no, John Wycliffe, wrote the first translation from the Greek into the English. His compulsion, he and Tyndale wanted to get a, a Bible into the everyday language of the people so they could hear from God themselves instead of having it filtered through some priest or someone else. And uh, anyway, these two started a trend way back in, in, 18, or in 1384, 1500, uh, a number of them, the Coverdale Bible, the Cranmer Bible, the Breaches Bible, the Beza Bible, and the Geneva Bible. All of them translate the word falling away that's in, in the, our, our modern versions. They translated it departing. Sometimes in the old English, spelled with a G at the end. But the important thing is, they were talking about the rapture. And if you look at the second chapter, he said, he's talking about our our gathering together, the coming of Jesus, and our gathering together unto him. And it fits, and you need this to uh, argue with your friends that are followed up. Okay, now turn with me to the subject of hand. There is no country in, a, in the world, in the public eye, better, even in this day, with the confusion in Algeria and uh, Libya, that, uh, than Israel. Israel is the nation that everyone's interested in. And I want to share with you the question of, can Israel survive? Everyone is against Israel. That seems to be a... A universal thing. Why? Satan. Satan hates Israel because of the Abrahamic covenant. As Dave quoted earlier today, God said, I'll bless them that bless you, and I'll curse them that curse you. Folks, that has never been revoked. That is the Abrahamic covenant that is still in operation today. And frankly, as a patriotic American, I trust God is going to come through on November 6th and perform a miracle. 
And may I say, I'm not the only one. I'm going to digress this morning. Just a minute. Well, two minutes. Have you seen this ad that our church, that we started in 1974 and that David Jeremiah is now the pastor of, in Shadow Mountain Community Church came out with this full-page ad in the San Diego Union picturing the most respected evangelical Christian in the world, Dr. Billy Graham, who has probably spoken more face-to-face than any other human being. In fact, one of his messages was carried face-to-face and on television to 281 million people. In fact, I was interviewed by Larry King one time, and I commended him for for uh, how he treated Billy Graham with such dignity and respect, because Larry's not a professing Christian. You know what he said to me? Well, you'd say, I kind of like Billy Graham. The only problem with him is every time I interview him here, he, he, he's after me. <laughs> and I said, well, Larry, that's what evangelists do. <laughs> anyway... Dr. Graham got so burdened for America that he's broken his pattern. He would never get involved when he was active as an evangelist. He didn't want to offend anyone for their politics. But now he's so deeply concerned about America. He was, in fact, Dr. David Jeremiah, my successor down in San Diego, knows Franklin very well. And Franklin and he were talking and he says, why don't you get your dad to put a full-page ad in the Wall Street Journal and the USA Today. They're the two most read newspapers in the United States. And Franklin's comment was, now he's the boy, 50-some-year-old boy, but he said, I'll ask Daddy about that. And uh, he went to Graham, and Graham felt this was a message from God that he wanted to use his influence, because Francis Schaeffer used to teach us, He that will not use his influence to preserve his influence will lose his influence, and neither his children or his grandchildren will rise up to call him blessed. And so Billy agreed, and he turned to David, and he said, "Uh, Dr. Jeremiah, uh, I'll do that if you raise the money. And they figured out they needed a million dollars. Well, David just told me the other day on the phone, he said, it has been a remarkable thing. So many people share Billy Graham's concern. We have already raised $4 million. <laughs> and this weekend, this article is going to appear in every major newspaper in the United States. And they have, they have three, four different categories of newspapers according to size and readership. And he said, we plowed through the third division and now we're going in, and in the fourth division, every newspaper will carry this ad. Let me read it to you if you haven't seen it. On November 6th, the day before my 94th birthday, our nation will hold one of the most critical elections in my lifetime. We are at a crossroads, and there are profound moral issues at stake. I strongly urge you to vote for candidates who support the biblical definition of marriage between one man and one woman, so long as they both shall live, and to protect the sanctity of human life. Praise God. I wish he'd tacked in there and uh, eliminate partial birth murder. And defend our religious freedoms, for the Bible speaks clearly on these crucial issues. Please join me in praying for America that we will turn our hearts back toward God. Thanks, Billy Graham, and all those that have participated in using their influence to preserve this great country of ours. You know why America is blessed? Two reasons. One, our forefathers founded this country on more biblical principles than any nation in the history of the world. One of my early books was The Faith of Our Founding Fathers. And when I read the journal of George Washington, a man who got on his knees and poured out to the Lord Jesus Christ, my Savior, who died and rose again, you got to get the impression that he was a born-again Christian, as were many of the others, and they used biblical principles. The Bible 
was quoted at the Constitutional Convention more than any other book in the world. And these men of God, not all of them were Christians. Out of the 55, I think three or four were, were unbelievers. But the rest were Bible-believing in their afterlife shows, the life after the Constitutional Convention. And God has blessed this quest for religious freedom for everybody. We in the Christian church don't expect government to save us. They, they don't preach the gospel. All we expect them to do is get off our back and let us do it. All we want them to do is guarantee freedom so we can preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Well, that's one thing that we, we need. But the second reason God has blessed America is because our track record has been better to the Jew, to Israel, than any nation in the history of the world. And he still has said, I'll bless them that bless you and curse them that curse you. So I'm going to make an armchair prophecy. Now, I have to confess, I'm not a prophet. I don't claim to be a prophet. And I don't think prophecy is, is available today except studying the prophecies of the word. As I'll share with you in a moment, there are over a thousand prophecies in the Bible. Now, relax, I'm not going to give them all to you. But uh, <clears throat> I believe that God has raised up America in a very significant way. And if we trust God, he will preserve us. So my prophecy is, we're going to win. <laughs> we're going to win because God has an appointment with men because of our track record with Israel. And I pray, God, we will never change giving and helping. Do you know why Israel is preserved today militarily? They've got some of the best and most sophisticated weapons in the world for safety and, and so on. Where did they get them? They didn't invent them. We gave them to them. And thanks be unto God that we gave them. They are the best allies we have in the world. So for those two reasons, I think Israel has a future. And I think, uh, now don't look for me on, on the November 7th. <laughs> Just rejoice with me. Okay, turn with me to chapter 37, and uh, let me, oh, I said Ezekiel, didn't I? No. Ezekiel, no wonder it didn't look familiar. Better put my glasses back on. Oh, one of these days. When Jesus shouts from heaven, I'm going to get a new set of eyes, and a lot of spare parts. We will be like him. And we will see him as he is. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Well, Jesus was three and a half, 33 and a half years old when he rose from the dead. Do you remember how you felt when you were 33 and a half? Dave isn't going to have back pains, and the rest of you won't have missing parts. In fact, I won't need a pacemaker anymore. And uh, turn with me to chapter 37 of Ezekiel. The hand of the Lord, verse 1 came upon me and brought me out of the, in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and I, it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed, they were very dry. Now, chapter 36, 37, 38, 39 is about Israel in the end times. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I love this prophet. He was so smart and committed spiritually. He said, so I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. In other words, he's saying, Lord, you're the only one that knows whether these bones can live. And again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. 
Anyone that's familiar with the Bible knows that the breath here is talking about the spirit. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet in an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Now may I suggest that you mark that place in your Bible. That is one of the most significant texts on prophecy in the Old Testament. These bones are the whole house of Israel. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you back or brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you, the spirit of Jesus is going to be in Israel someday. And you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Let's have our word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for Israel, the super sign that we're living in the last days. And help us to rightly divide and identify these truths. And it may inspire us to know that you have a plan for Israel. And thanks be unto God, our nation has a share in preserving Israel. We pray that we may always be an instrument in your hand up until the rapture of the church and then the Antichrist appears and the world is working so feverishly to bring in a one world government. They don't realize, I don't think, that they're working for the Antichrist. But we understand from the word of God that Israel is the bellwether. It's a significant tool that you're proving that thou art God. Help us to trust and rightly divide the word of truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I believe Israel is the super sign of the last days. We are living, as someone has said, in the last days of the last days. We're very close to the coming of Jesus. Isn't that good news? And in fact, my wife and I pray, even in our mid-80s, that we're going to be part of the rapture. So if you're not ready, you better get ready pretty quick, if we're right. And in fact, even if we're not, you still need to get ready. The best way to live this life is that when Jesus comes, suddenly and without warning, he won't catch you by surprise, that you'll be taken up with him. All right, now Israel is identified here. There's no question that we're talking about the nation that God has raised up and created. And he has brought them into the world to communicate to mankind his great love for mankind. And I'll show you that in a moment. But Bible prophecy is an amazing subject. In fact, turn just a few pages back to Isaiah chapter 46, where in Isaiah he said, I am, verse 9, I am God, and there is no other. Now, the occasion for this marvelous passage in Isaiah is that uh, the children of Israel, even the officials of Israel, were worshiping idols. I can't believe that the leaders of Israel, Ezekiel saw through a hole in the door, and he saw the 70 elders of Israel worshiping idols. So the very thing they were commanded not to do as a nation, as, an, as individuals, they were doing, worshiping idols. And ladies, it says that the Women's Aid Society, wherever they were in the temple building, they were up there weeping for Tamez. That's appalling that these people that had been committed to God had this heresy going on. And so in the 46th chapter, verse 9, the Lord rebukes them for their idolatry. And look at verse 9. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Creation, the end, 
the coming of Christ. God's whole plan is, is given out to us. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do my pleasure. Now look at this timeline chart that I think will help, to, help us to understand that God has a plan for us. There, there we are. Ages past, ages to come. That's eternity. Those half circles will someday be put together and be made to the universal heaven. In the meantime, from Adam and Eve to the present day and on through the tribulation and so on, God has a plan for this world and we're moving rapidly down the corridor of time. And what we find is that prophecy assures us that there is a God in heaven. For example, our God has proven to us his existence by 1,000 prophecies, 500 of which have been accurately fulfilled. For example, we have many prophecies about nations, about people, about uh, Jesus the Messiah. As a matter of fact, one of the evidences or uses of prophecy is to confirm the identity of Jesus. One of the things I write about in, in my book on, on Jesus, who is he, or Jesus, uh, the, why the world is still so fascinated by Jesus, as Murph just said a few minutes ago. It's in Incredible how the world is still struck with awe at this person who lived 2,000 years ago. But you see, it's the resurrection that proves the dynamic of who he was. No one else has ever been raised up by Almighty God as he was raised. And the proof of the deity of Jesus cannot be contested. For example, Jesus was born. Everybody in this room and everybody in this town, in fact, this country and maybe the whole world knows where Jesus was born. In Bethlehem of Judea, a little town hamlet. It was hardly worth calling it a town. But you see, the pagan king had issued a decree of the Roman world that, that people had to go back to their, their birthplace to register for, we call it a tax. It probably was registration and tax. But uh, the governments haven't changed a great deal. But um, and it gives us a, the assurity that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. Get this message. Every woman here knows about pregnancy, that if you've had a child, you know what it is. For Dr. Luke said, Mary was great with child. Any woman here doesn't understand that? I mean, it means two weeks maybe three weeks and you're going to have that baby through great suffering. And then you'll think, I'll never do this again. And then afterward you think, well, it was worth it. And then the child is its own heritage. It's her own reward because children are a heritage of the Lord. And you'll find that, that that blessed experience gives you an inspiration to serve God and to raise that child up. I remember standing in the Chicago airport and waiting for a plane. It was late. And this woman <clears throat> who told me after I introduced myself and talked to her, but uh, she was 33 years old. She was a computer manager of some big, very professional woman. And she has this three-month-old baby in her arms, and she's just hugging that, her first child. And I'm thinking about this woman, how she's a professional woman. She's all, you know, the, what they want the women to think that that's what they are for. But she was now mothering and the motherhood instinct took over and she says this is the greatest thing that ever happened to me and a testimony of the importance of motherhood and you gals are smiling at me you know what it's like you look at that little thing and think what's happening god in his marvelous grace has given you that gift well you know the signs he said dr luke said and he was a medical doctor as you know and uh, he said that Mary was great with child. My question is, the prophet said he'd be born in Jerusalem, or in Bethlehem. And she got this message in Nazareth. Do you know how far that is? 90 miles. Not on air-conditioned bus. Not on a comfortable car. But either on the back of a donkey or in the back of an ox cart. Either way, it's a bumpy ride all the way. My question is, why wasn't that baby born 
anywhere along the way. In fact, they went right by the biggest city in all of Israel, Jerusalem. That means if they had a general hospital, they went right by the general hospital to Bethlehem where they didn't even have a room for him. And so he was born out in a stable in the providence of God. Now, how could she wait that long? Because God prophesied. Now, that's only one. There are 100, at least 109. In my prophecy Bible, I, I got in the back a list of all 121 prophecies about Jesus' first coming. If you study the comings, the prophecies of Jesus that he fulfilled, you come away overwhelmed with the fact that no one else even comes close. I tried to hypothecate one time. I wonder how many of those 109 or 121 prophecies uh, could someone else have fulfilled? Maybe six or seven. Jesus fulfilled them all. So when we pray to Jesus, it's with a confident heart that he is the one and only Messiah. One of the messages of contagion that I've caught from Dave is how I'd love to communicate this to the Jews and help them to understand how Jesus is one of a kind and they need to call upon his name. Well, it also shares with us the wonderful plan God has for, for us in the future. Now turn with me quickly to the New Testament where I want you to look at the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 21, where the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write these words. Actually, these are the words of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse and a different passage than... Uh, Dave gave us in Matthew 24. Uh, In verse 20, it says, Now, when the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. Well, that's that's not right. Yeah, it is. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, because... Besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. It's after the crucifixion. And a certain and certain women Verse twenty seven. Oh here it is. In the beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus proved he, who he was. And he said that the times of the Gentiles, must, Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That brings us to the subject of the times of the Gentiles. Who are they and what are these times? Well, Daniel gives us an idea. In fact, Daniel chapter 2 talks to us about the vision of Nebuchadnezzar. And this is one of those great uh, prophecies that stands head and shoulders above many others. And you'll find that that, uh, Daniel said when he was brought in before the king. Remember the king had a dream, Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, let me back up and just say it's remarkable how God led the children of the leaders of the children of Israel into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. Babylon was the citadel of pagan religions. It's where all religion, pagan religions have emanated from. And you'll find that these pagan religions did not honor the God of gods, the creator, and that they need to recognize his power and his creativity. He's the God that declares the end from the beginning, remember? How can we trust God for creation? Because the Bible is so accurate in the fulfillment of of Bible prophecies. 500 of the prophecies of the Bible have already been fulfilled. I know skeptics say, well, what about the other 500? They are coming. They are the end time prophecies. That's the difference between eschatology, end time, and prophecy, which is general. And you'll find that these are, are being fulfilled. Well, you remember King Nebuchadnezzar. We all learned this in Sunday school. 
had a dream. He was a conqueror, and God had led the children of Israel to come in mass as leadership to Babylon, the source of all pagan idolatry, because he wanted to teach them that only God in heaven could reveal this future. And so when the king had this dream, he couldn't remember. He said to his people, if you just come and, and uh, uh, if, if you will worship, or if you will interpret, he brought in the soothsayers and the astrologers and the necromancers and all of the leaders of Israel. He brought them all in, and uh, uh, pardon me, of Babylon, and he brought them all in and asked them to recall his dream, and they couldn't. And he, of course, gave them the test. If you can't remember my dream, then I can't trust you to interpret it. It made good sense. And then somebody, well, he did what dictators always do. Either you do what I want or off with your head. And so they scurried around, and they found out there was a Jewish boy that had been taken from Jerusalem. His name was Daniel, and that he could interpret uh, dreams. And so they called him up, and so this, can you imagine in this splendiferous cathedral or whatever this place was, castle building, all these rich, uh, these, these, these uh, necromancers and soothsayers were there, and they couldn't recall the dream. And one of them even said, O oh, king, um, no king has ever asked wise men to do this. And uh, he asked them again. And so finally they brought in Daniel. And Daniel said, there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets. And in that secret, he revealed to him his dream. His dream was rather interesting. By the way, I think we have a picture of that dream. I want you to see it. That dream was that uh, there would be four world empires. But I notice, in that dream, you have the head of gold, the chest of silver. It was two, actually two arms, because it was two nations. And the Greeks, the belly of brass, and then the Roman government. And when you put that down to the times of the Gentiles, now you notice that, here we are, it actually fits human history. In 2,600 years, folks, how many world emperors have there been? Four. The Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And we're still living in the aftermath of the Roman type of governments all over the world. And here you have the plan of God. And he said that the times of the Gentiles would end the period of God's dealing with mankind. And during that time, they have the cross. The Messiah would be cut off. And he would not be cut off for himself, but for others. Because he died for the sins of the whole world. And... We have, after the church age, as Dave talked very eloquently a few minutes ago about the times of the Pentecost and the initiation of the church and how the church has grown by leaps and bounds and how it's been persecuted, it's been the target of Satan and so on. And during that church age, millions of people have come to faith in God through Jesus Christ his Lord. And uh, we're coming down to the closing period. Notice at the end of the church age, there's going to be a tribulation. But as Dave has pointed out, and as I believe thoroughly, that before that comes, we're going to have the rapture. And then the world goes through seven years of tribulation. And what is that purpose? God wants to shake man of his false sense of security. We see this on television every night as the the confusion is taking place in New York City and in the East. They're, they're panicky. They, they hardly know what to do. They've got a mess on their hands. And that's just a small indication of what's going to happen in the tribulation period. And what is the purpose of God? He wants to shake man of his false sense of security so that he can call on the name of the Lord and be prepared for the next major thing. And it's interesting, that period will be short-lived. It will be a time when God will bless the nation of Israel and they will be communicating the gospel. Read Revelation chapter 7. He's going to commission 144,000 witnesses and they go out and preach the gospel and reach a multitude which no one can number. 
and it's going to be a contest between Satan and God to get man for prepared for the future, which is at the end of the tribulation period, the glorious appearing when Jesus finishes his coming. He comes for the church, and the blowing of the trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15 is the last trumpet for the church. But the world will go on, and we have the trumpet judgments and so on during the tribulation. And then the Lord will finish his coming by coming to the earth to set up his kingdom. And we have the, the glorious appearing or the introduction of the millennium. But the important thing to understand is everyone has to have made their decision about what to do with Jesus by the end of the tribulation period. That's why we put it in red and cause it's has to impress upon us that it is a time of great conflict between God and Satan for the souls of men. Now that's going on today, but nothing like we'll do during the tribulation period. And then we have the glorious appearing and the great millennial kingdom for a thousand years. Can you live? Can you imagine what it would be like to live during the thousand years of peace when they'll beat their swords into plowshares when there'll be no war anymore what a refreshing change that's going to be and you'll find that during that period of time God will bless the world I think the population will be extra phenomenal because it's God's will that all men come to a saving knowledge of Jesus well that's how he's going to do it but let me get back to uh, talking about Israel because something has happened that I think we need to highlight. I read a book not too long ago by a Jewish rabbi named Cohen, K-O-H-E-N, in which he makes a statement that I'd never seen anywhere else. He said, the unusual transformation of a wasteland, Israel, persisted continuously for 660,000 days, something unparalleled in the annals of human history. I put that through a computer. I'm not a mathematician or the son of a mathematician, so I use a computer. And uh, found out that that's 1,820 years that Israel was a nothing land. Nobody lived there. In fact, Mark Twain went there on a tour of Israel. And he wrote these words in 1867. He said, the Israel soil is rich enough, but is given wholly to weeds. Only desolation here. Jerusalem is lifeless. I would not desire to live here. That's the Holy Land, folks. Why? Because the children of Israel had turned their backs on God in an amazing way, and they were suffering. They were driven out by the Romans. In fact, one of the rebellions, the Barcaba rebellion, the Romans were so irritated at them, they issued a decree that you, anytime you found a Jew in the Holy Land, you could kill him. It was legal. That's one way of keeping them out. And so they went all over the world. And in the history of the world, there has never been a nation that was able to survive the uprooting of its national homeland to some other place or scattered around that maintained its existence, except the children of Israel. And they were sent out to the four winds of the world, the whole world, and that there would be a day come when they would be gathered back in the land. And that time of desolation, when there's no wind, no, no rain, there was no arable land, there was no farming to speak of, and they could barely sustain existence. And that's the reason no one successfully occupied that area of the world. And because God had a plan. In fact, I, I read my friend Joe Farah, who wrote, who uh, used to own the uh, World Net Daily. And in it, he did some survey, and he found, interestingly enough, from the time that Mark Twain was there until the time that uh, we live today, Israel's re-entrance into the land during the 
the uh, time of, of uh, the uh, rise of Israel's national identity, they moved back into the land. And as they moved back in, it was because the rain had started. And today, Israel is the breadbasket of many parts of Europe. My wife and I were in Holland a few years ago, and we were amazed to find that the place of, of, uh, of tulips, famous for tulips all over the world, and they have them, they buy them in Israel. And Israel is now an arable country because God delivered the rain. I don't have to ask you, who controls the weather? Almighty God, obviously. And therefore, we're living at a time when we're, we've seen Israel gathered back in the land. Well, let me call your attention to some interesting, and I'll be quick about this. Israel was promised by, by Great Britain that if they would cooperate, they would give them a homeland. The Balfour Treaty was found signed in 1917. I believe the great shaking was when uh, Chaim Weitzman in 1916 was approached. He's a chemist and a great uh, inventor in England by the Admiralty of, of Great Britain. And that was a time when they used to say the sun never sets on the British Empire. They rule, or they, by commerce, had people all over the world. And they went to Chaim Weitzman and said, we understand that you have invented acetic acid that's necessary in the production of TNT. See, at that point in history, the Germans were mowing down with their machine guns and modern technology, the British uh, troops. And they made a deal with Chaim Weitzman. And they, say, they said, what do you want for the, your invention? And he said, the guarantee of a homeland in Israel. And he didn't want money. He wanted to preserve Israel for the future. And they signed an agreement with him, the Balfour Treaty, that you probably heard about. And uh, they also made the same deal with the uh, Arab world and promised them a homeland in, this, in Palestine. And they, they were willing to promise anything during that First World War to, to get out of the trouble that they were in with European powers and so on. And I believe the fact that they welched on that deal, as I'll show you in a moment, is the reason that England is no longer a power in the world today. They lost their touch with God. They lost the blessing of God. And I'm praying that America not do that. But some unusual things happened in America. For example, did you know that Franklin D. Roosevelt, when he was president of the United States, and he was elected three times, when he was president, he had a vice president named Henry Wallace. Henry Wallace was a communist. Senator McCarthy has been upbraided by the liberal press for saying that they're the State Department and many others who were filled with communists, well, he's been proven right after he died. But uh, the reason is because of Henry Wallace and other people that had influence in the government. And on, in 1945, oh, he, he, oh, he was hurriedly replaced by a haberdasher from Missouri named Harry Truman. You remember that? Some of you white-haired folks like me, you can remember when Harry Truman was... He was almost totally unqualified to be elected, but he was head of the Pendergast machine in Missouri, and they had power, and, and they were looking around for a replacement for Henry Wallace, and so they moved Harry in. And then on April 12th of 1945, Harry Truman, the Baptist poker player, as he was known, a novice, total novice of foreign policy, who didn't trust the striped pants. They were the dealers, the, the negotiators in the foreign policy. He didn't trust them, probably because he knew they were like Henry Wallace. Anyway, he became president with an antagonism toward the way the country had been led internationally. And disregarding the pressure from George, General George Marshall, head of the Marshall Plan that was it's so exalted today, even. 
and his presidential advisors, he heeded the teaching of his Baptist Sunday school teaching mother, who told him when he got into politics, Harry, if you ever get a chance to help Israel, do it. And what happened in 1948, after negotiations using the power of the government, Harry Truman, regardless of what you may think of him and his party, he was so burdened for Israel, he went to the mat to help them get freedom and get acknowledgement. In fact, he pressured 18 other nations to join him, and he was the 19th, the United States was the 19th, and when they met at the United Nations, the United Nations, they, <laughs> they, they met and voted by one vote, the vote of the United States, to approve Israel as a nation. History has shown any nation, any pipsqueak dictator that overrules or has a revolution can be acknowledged as a country by the United Nations, but, but not Israel. That, that hatred for Israel, it seems to be so universal. Well, Harry Truman, God bless him, that he was the instrument through his mother to let Israel be accepted in the League of, in the United Nations. You'd think that that would have solved things, that now Israel was a nation acknowledged by the United Nations. But I want to tell you that Israel went through four years of war around 1948, the War of Independence. And there was a hue and cry that if you would just trade land, you could have peace. That's a big lie. It's always been land for peace, land for peace. In 1956, the Sinai camp campaign, our Operation Kadesh, was land for peace. We'll negotiate a peace if you just give us more land. Well, they started out giving, the British had given the uh, Arab world two-thirds, or even some say three-fourths, of the Palestine to the Arabs and not to the Jews. And in the Six-Day War, and even Bill Clinton and Obama wanted to, to move the, um, the borders back to the six, six, uh, 1967 borderline. The reason I stutter is I, I was thinking of the time that we visited there when they had, had steel plates welded on the on the backs of right around the the cabin they didn't have cabins in those days in in, in uh, tractors and in the Golan Heights or below the Golan Heights near the the arable land near the 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 uh, Dead Sea or the uh, they they had to put those there because snipers would get up on top of the hills and fire at the drivers of the the farmers running the tractors. And so that was for self-protection. And they wanted to move back with today's technology and so on. I mean, it's appalling. And then in 1973, they have the Yom Kippur War. But in all of them, they say, well, now we could have peace if Israel would just give a little more land. A little more land. I want to show you a graphic. I'm going to jump ahead and get something I want to share. If you show that, the last graphic... Now look at this. All the green, I don't know why we put them in green, but they're kind of like the environmentalists. Uh, these are, but notice the little country of Israel. Just a little red speck up there. And they're saying again, well, if you just give a little more land, you could have peace. And we've got 21 nation Arab countries that are filled with hatred and bitterness and wrath. And the world wants peace. We just have peace. As Dave talked in the last session, they've mentioned it so many times. Well, we could, we just give them more. The one thing they want to give away is Israel. And thanks be unto God, we have a man, an American-trained scholar who can speak on TV and we can understand him. And uh, Netanyahu, when we were there in Israel just a year and a couple months ago, he said, never again. You know the story of Masada. 
when almost a thousand people went up to Masada and they died there rather than give in to the Roman soldiers. Well, the children of Israel believe there's no place for them to go. The Arabs say, well, we'll just drive into the sea. And they have failed. The Arabs have tried repeatedly, repeatedly, and they've lost on the battlefield and they've lost at the negotiating table, except they keep giving more and more increments. And now Israel doesn't have anything more to give. And so we're asking the question, can Israel still be saved? Yes. I hate to say this, with or without the United States, Israel will be saved. Why? Israel is the apple of Jehovah's eye. And he is going to preserve Israel. He is going to take care of Israel. I just hope that our American diplomats after November 7th will realize that our future destiny is dependent on how we treat Israel. If you, are, if you bless Israel, you'll be blessed of God. Amen. I love America, as you probably know. Back in World War II, I was just anxious to get out of high school early, so I went to night school and graduated 17, not at the head of my class, as I made confession. But I graduated from high school because I wanted to go in the Air Force. I had dreamed of always being a pilot and flying a P-51 and helping save the world from the Nazis. Well, my dream never fulfilled because the war ended before we finished uh, our training. Although I was a waste gunner on a B-29 and we were all set for the invasion of Japan. The military had told us we had our 13 member crew, which flown, I think, about 30 missions, trial missions, training. And so we were ready for the invasion. And they told us we we're going to lose a million men. And I remember going home and telling my mom, I may never see you again, because it looks like well, we won't make it. I wasn't a pilot. I was a waste gunner. And first time I was introduced to a computer, computerized with the wind uh, change and so on, and the speed of the aircraft could be computed, and the rate of kill was dreadful for zeros and, and fighter planes. But anyway, we were set to go to Saipan, this lead-off place, a huge airfield where our planes would launch for the invasion of Japan. When Harry Truman gave the order to use the atomic bomb to prove to the Japanese that they should surrender. And they didn't the first time. And I dread this, I hated that they had to do a second time. But they finally recognized they had an enemy with awesome power that they could not resist. And when my young son came home many years later in California and was telling me what a bad guy President Truman was, and how we should never have dropped the atomic bomb and all that. I said, son, one thing to factor into your reasoning is if we had lost a million men, you probably wouldn't be here. And I explained to him, he's never brought that subject up again. <laughs> God has his hand on America. And our destinies are tied in to Israel. Israel will survive. The big question is, will America survive? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us. Thank you for raising up America. As you know, I don't believe or teach that America is explicitly taught in Bible prophecy. It's just a phenomenon of a nation whose forefathers put your principles that are clearly spelled out in the Bible the test and our country has been blessed and we've been taken over by secularizers with a, a one world phobia I think they're in satanically inspired and Lord we confess we are no match for Satan but we also know that he that is in us is greater 
than he that's in the world. And that you are able to spare America, not because we deserve it, but because we are still a bastion of propagation of the gospel. There are literally thousands of missionaries out around the world teaching and preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then this day of confusion about doctrine and so on, may more and more people look to the word of God because in truth, there's nothing else. Only the word of God teaches us the truth of God about the past, about how to live, and about the future. Most of all, it teaches us how to prepare for the future. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, the only being in the universe that could die for our sins and his death become efficacious enough to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you for this. And as we're bowed for prayer, I couldn't close this service without speaking to someone here who may never have invited Jesus into your life. You know, there's a movement of the Spirit of God of breaking down some of the man-made barriers between church denominations. But we have a universal acceptance that your Son is the one and only way. No man comes to the Father but by him. And there may be some here that have been confused, either by false teaching or misjudgment of prophecy or whatever. But we pray that they will understand that Jesus is the way who could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If you have never come to the Father, understand something. Jesus said twice, and Peter said once, you must be born again. You must personally And that's the thing that binds us together, the belief in Jesus as the only Son of God and the need for a personal acceptance. It's not joining a church. It's not a religion. And if you can't think of a time when you called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, are you willing right now to admit to God, Oh God, I am a sinner. Forgive my sin. In the name of Jesus, let him come into my heart and become my Savior and my Lord. And may all of us say, Lord, with whatever time we have left, I give it all to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.